Martin Luther, born November 10th, 1483, had every intention of being a lawyer. Until age 21, he was heading home from school one night when he got caught in a big massive thunderstorm and a bolt of lightning struck the ground right beside him. So he cried out to God, if you save me, I promise to live my life as a monk, which he did. And let me tell you, Martin Luther was an extraordinary monk because he plunged himself into prayer and fasting, all kinds of ascetic practices, including going days and days without sleep, enduring bone-chilling nights without a blanket, and of course, flagellating himself, so whipping his own back with a leather strap. And as he later commented, if anyone could have ever earned their way to heaven by being a monk, it was I which, of course, included a trip to Rome, 1510, to visit the graves of 46 popes, the cemeteries of 80,000 martyrs, and climb the 26 stairs of the Scala Sancta on his knees while reciting our fathers on every step. Why? Because the Roman Catholic Church taught when a coin in the coffer rings, another soul from purgatory springs. And Luther desperately wanted to free his grandfather from purgatory. Why am I telling you this? Because Martin Luther was a man, at least at one point in his life, who was convinced he had to work in order to earn his way to heaven, which he did better than most, and yet was completely miserable. He said, although I was a holy monk, my conscience was full of anguish. In fact, I could not bear the words, the righteousness of God. Because I love not a righteous God who punishes sinners, I was filled with secret rage against him, and I hated him because he was not satisfied with terrifying his miserable creatures already lost in sin with his law and the miseries of this life. He still further increased our torment. How? He says, by the gospel. Do you understand what's going on here? Luther, at this point in his life, had a radical misunderstanding of the gospel. And specifically, Romans 1.17, which says, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith, which he understood to mean you had to be righteous in and of yourself, doing good works all the time without sin, perfectly, in order to be justified before God. The righteous shall live by faith. That was his understanding of it. It wasn't until four years later that he started to see his way through this dilemma. So while lecturing through the book of Romans, of all places, it suddenly became clear that justification is by faith alone, not by works of the law. He says, at last... By the mercy of God, I understood. Then immediately I felt myself revived like a new man. And I entered at open doors into the very paradise of God. This morning, 12 reasons Jesus came to die. Reason number eight, to empower us to live by faith and not by works. Knowing that we can't earn our way to God, 
and need to understand that in Christ we've been given the very righteousness of God and are empowered by the Spirit to live for His glory. So both salvation and sanctification are by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Which is what Paul is going to try to help us understand. So if you would, go ahead and turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Also encourage you to grab my outline from your bulletin. Three points this morning. Salvation by faith alone. Salvation not by works. Salvation in Christ alone. If you would, follow along as I read Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly betrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now critical for you to understand the context here because false teachers known as Judaizers were appealing to the Galatian believers that in order to be a true Christian, you have to follow the Old Testament law with all of its rules and regulations, including circumcision, in addition to believing in Christ. So they're arguing it's Jesus plus the law in order to be right with God, just like Luther. Which is why Paul just introduced the doctrine of justification by faith. In fact, look at chapter 2, verse 15. Paul just said, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Why? Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. That sounds pretty clear to me, don't you think? But they're obviously not getting it. So he starts by saying, chapter 3, verse 1, Oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your very eyes that Christ was publicly betrayed as crucified. So he's hammering them, isn't he? 
But from Paul's perspective, it's as if a sorcerer has cast a wicked spell over their eyes, preventing them from seeing the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ and the significance of the cross of Calvary. So he goes right into a series of five rapid-fire rhetorical questions. What exactly is he doing with those questions? Well, he's A, making an argument from experience. Because all five questions are getting after this one main idea summarized in verse 2. Look at verse 2. Right? Paul says, let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Obviously a rhetorical question. The Galatians received the Spirit by faith, by faith alone. But obviously, They need to be reminded again that they received the Spirit by faith and not by works of the law. But in order to demonstrate that point, where does Paul go? He goes to Scripture. So it's not just an argument from experience. It's be an argument from Scripture. Paul says, verse 5, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Notice. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, here's his conclusion, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. In order to understand all that Paul is saying here, we've got to take a little trip back to the book of Genesis because he quotes two different passages here. First quote is Genesis 15, second quote is Genesis 12. So if you would, turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. Page 8 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Genesis is kind of easy. It's not like Malachi or something in the middle, right? Just go to the beginning of the Bible. Genesis, that's helpful, you know. So Genesis chapter 12. Let me read verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, will be Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God promises Abraham three very specific things, right? A great name, a great nation, and a great blessing. But exactly how is that the gospel? Paul said back in Galatians 3.8 that the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham. How exactly did he do that? Well, it's right here in verse 3. That in you, Abraham, and through your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Do you see how that's a clear pointer forward to the Lord Jesus Christ? Because you need to understand, Abraham was a total pagan here in Genesis chapter 12 from the land of Ur, one of the major centers for lunar religion. What is that? It's moon worship. 
So the city was dominated by ziggurats built as shrines to the moon god. Abraham's a total pagan who doesn't deserve any of these promises. And yet God graciously comes to him and promises him, think about this, a great name, a great nation, and that all the families of the earth shall be blessed through him. That's incredible. But there's a problem, isn't there? Because Abraham is married to Sarai, or Sarah, who according to chapter 11, verse 30, is barren and has no child. What actually gets clarified for us in the second passage that Paul quotes back in Galatians 3. So flip forward to Genesis 15. And let's look at how this whole thing unfolds. We've got to do a little work up front to understand all that's going on in Galatians 3. That's what we're doing now. Genesis 15, 1 to 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside. And he said to him, Look toward heaven. And number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. That's an incredible promise. Especially when you realize Abraham's almost 100 years old when it finally comes to pass. And Sarah's 90. But God promises their seed will be like the stars of the sky. And here's the quote that Paul uses back in Galatians 3, Genesis 15, 6. And Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. How does God confirm this unbelievable promise? Verse 8 tells us Abraham asked the exact same question. So to confirm a covenant in the Old Testament, you'd cut animals in half and you would place them in two rows. And basically the two parties making the covenant walk through the middle of those sacrificed animals, essentially saying that if I break my side of the bargain, I wish myself to be sacrificed like one of those animals. Here's the catch. Abraham's asleep when God walks through the animals, which means God walks through them for both of them. So already, all the way back in Genesis 15, regardless of who breaks the covenant, God's the one who's willing to die, willing to be sacrificed. So, so knowing the sinfulness of man, God's already offering up the Lord Jesus Christ, essentially signing his death certificate all the way back. In Genesis 15. What's the point? The point is that Abraham did nothing. Absolutely nothing to earn God's favor. He didn't work for it. He didn't labor for it. He didn't even keep the law for it. My goodness, he wasn't even awake for it. He certainly didn't earn it through the ceremony of circumcision, right? Why do I say that? 
Because as we've just seen, the gospel was preached to him in Genesis 12. He believed the promises of God in Genesis 15 where he was reckoned as righteous. But all of that precedes circumcision, which doesn't happen until when? Genesis 17. So there's a very definite chronology that's going on here which solidifies the one point that Paul is laboring to make back in Galatians 3, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by works of the law. Certainly not by circumcision. Flip back to Galatians 3. Let me ask verse 2 again. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith. Obviously by hearing with faith, just like Abraham, which means justification is by faith alone. So salvation in the Old Testament is identical to salvation in the New Testament. There's not two ways of salvation, one for the Old Testament saints through bulls and goats, and one for the New Testament saints through the Lord Jesus Christ. No, Hebrews 12.4 makes it very clear, the blood of bulls and goats accomplished nothing. So salvation, both old and new, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And sanctification, both old and new, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Well, so now let me ask, is that clear to you this morning? Let me put it this way. What's pulling the train of your life? What's the motivation? What's driving all that you do? Is it faith in God? Or is it works to earn God's favor? If it's not faith in God, Paul's saying, Oh, you foolish people of proclamation, who has bewitched you? Righteousness comes not by working for God, but by believing in God. And to miss that is to totally misunderstand the gospel. Now, I think we get that when it comes to salvation. But what about sanctification? What does sanctification by faith alone look like practically? Well, as believers, we know that we must not steal, that we must not cheat, that we should give generously to the local church, but we're tempted, aren't we, not to do so, especially when we're anxious about finances. But when we walk by faith and trust Christ, we're reminded that God promises to take care of us, that that Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What's the context that he's talking about there? He's talking about food and shelter and clothing, all the things that you need. You're like, you're just trying to get us to give more money to the church. No, I'm trying to help you understand this. Well, let's take one that's, that's a little bit more difficult. What about sexual sin? Couldn't we say the same thing about sexual sin? Sexual temptations are intense. I would suggest they're ravaging our world. But God teaches us that sexual pleasure is restricted to the context of marriage for our good and for his glory. So then what does it mean to live by faith and trust God? Well, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. 
It doesn't mean just try harder to avoid sexual sin. If that's your plan, I promise you'll lose every single time. But instead, it means we actively love God. We actively trust God, even in the midst of the temptation, believing that God intends something so much greater for us than this specific lure of sin. And to break his command would actually bring the greatest destruction and the greatest misery on our own lives rather than God's intended blessing. Do you hear what I'm saying? So obedience to God flows from faith in God. Obedience to God flows from faith in God. Faith has to drive the train of your life. It has to motivate all that you're doing. Trusting God and believing God that his commands are what you'd wish for yourself if you knew what was best for you. Otherwise, Paul's saying, we've lost the gospel altogether. Paul wants us to be clear. Number one, that salvation is by faith alone. He also wants us to be clear, number two, that salvation is not by works. Look at what he says in verses 10 to 12. Paul says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, curse be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. I want you to see that Paul is making three very connected arguments here. I'm going to try to untangle them one by one so that you can see that Paul is saying that faith is the only pathway to blessing. That salvation, justification, eternal life, going to heaven, being with God for all eternity, fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore are all received by faith alone. Faith gets the blessing. Works of the law gets the curse. All of that Received by faith alone, not by works of the law. So trying to earn your way to God with good works will only bring a curse. Three reasons why salvation is not by works of the law. Number one, because the law requires perfect obedience. Look again at verse 10. Paul says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, now here's the quote, curse be everyone who does not abide, notice by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Where Paul... Where's Paul quoting from? Deuteronomy 27, 26. Is that in your memory program? I'm, I'm not thinking it is, right? Deuteronomy 27, 26 is what he's quoting. What's the context of Deuteronomy 27? It's a time when Moses puts before all the people the blessings and the curses. So he tells them that if you do all these things and you keep the law perfectly, you will be blessed. But if you disobey, you will be cursed. He puts before them blessings and curses. You need to understand that means eternal life and eternal damnation. Let me be clear here because there's absolutely nothing wrong with the law. Paul says, Romans 7, 12, that the law is holy and righteous and good. So the law is not the problem. 
But the law does require perfect obedience. Otherwise, you're cursed. In that context, Moses lists 12 curses. Listen to them. People will be cursed for idolatry. People will be cursed for dishonoring their parents, for perverting justice, for being unkind, for sexual immorality, for hatred, for cruelty, for bribery. Then Moses says, Deuteronomy 27, 26, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all these things and do them perfectly. Salvation is not by works, number one, because there's no way any one of us can keep the law perfectly. We're intrinsically sinful. We're instinctively wicked, right? We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But that's true even if it was a single sin, an isolated transgression. What am I saying to you? I'm saying if you did absolutely everything perfect, but you sinned in one way, you would deserve the curse. Why is that? Because you're sinning against an infinitely holy God. Let me prove it to you. Think about the Garden of Eden. Think about the Garden of Eden. God gave Adam one command, just one. You shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, what will happen? You will surely die. He ate and he died. Why? Because he broke one command. Reason number one, because not one of us obeys the law perfectly. Reason number two, because justification is by faith. Now you might think that's a bit obvious, meaning isn't that what Paul just argued in verses six to nine? Yes, but now he's arguing it specifically from Habakkuk 2.4. Look at what he says in verse 11. Now, it's evident that no one is justified by, before God by the law. Why? For or because. Then he quotes Habakkuk 2.4. Here it is. The righteous shall live by faith. Why does he quote Habakkuk 2.4? Well, you have to understand the context of Habakkuk. Because the Israelites had sinned badly. So Habakkuk predicts a coming judgment. Why? Because they failed to keep God's law. Who exactly is going to bring that judgment in the book of Habakkuk? Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. But Habakkuk also promises in the book of Habakkuk, there's only three chapters, he promises that the Babylonians will also be judged. So the nation that judges the people of God will also be judged themselves. And then he promises that they're going to experience this glorious new exodus, total deliverance. But it's a test for the people of God. And the question is really helpful to ask ourselves this morning. Because here's the test. Will we actually trust God, even in the midst of the storm? Are we really going to trust the Lord, believe in God, know that he has our good, even as we go through the valley of difficulty, 
knowing that on the other side, he promises good things for us. Will we trust him? Will we believe in him? Will we rest in his promises? Here's how Habakkuk ends. Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. You hear how that's the lowest of the low. A time when the people of God have absolutely nothing. Yet verse 18. Listen to what Habakkuk says. And yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. I pray that we would have that kind of clarity. That salvation has to be by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Because our only hope is in God and not in ourselves. That's why Habakkuk says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That God alone, the Lord alone, is my strength. That's Paul's argument. Habakkuk 2.4, that the righteous shall live by faith in God. Let me ask again. What's pulling the train of your life? What's the motivation? What's driving all that you do? Is it faith in God or is it something other than that? Is it faith in God or is it works to earn God's favor? See, it has to be faith. If we miss that, we totally misunderstand the gospel. Because righteousness comes not by working for God, but by believing in God. Reason number three. Because law obedience is not faith obedience. Meaning the law and faith are not compatible. Paul says in verse 12, the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Again, Paul quotes from the Old Testament. This time he's quoting Leviticus 18.5. But in order to understand the argument, you need to understand what it means that the one who does them shall live by them. Because the word live here refers to eternal life. So Leviticus 18.5 promises eternal life to those who keep the law. Which is totally true. Because to keep the law perfectly is to be perfectly righteous. But we already know, Romans 3.10, that there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. None who does good, not even one. But as soon as you get that, then you understand these two orientations, faith and works, are completely incompatible, right? right? Faith in Christ is radically different than works of the law. Those two are incompatible. They're like apples and oranges, Paul's not suggesting in any way here that we throw them into the theological blender and have some sort of eternal life smoothie. They're incompatible. You either have law obedience or you have faith obedience. So you're either obeying God's law perfectly to earn your salvation or you're believing in Christ who secured your salvation. You're either trusting in your own efforts or you're resting in his finished work. Do you hear what I'm saying? You can't have both. 
Works of the law and faith in Christ are incompatible. Before we transition to the punchline, 12 reasons Jesus came to die. Reason number eight, to empower us to live by faith, salvation in Christ alone. Let me first ask this absolutely wonderful, appropriate, and from my perspective, theologically delightful question. Why did God give us the law? Meaning, if salvation was always meant to be by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that's what I'm arguing from Genesis, then why the law? What's its purpose? That's a great question, if I do say so myself. I recognize I asked it, right? (laughs) Here's why it's a great question. Because Paul asks the same question. Look at chapter 3, verse 19. Why the law? Here's his answer. It was added because of transgressions. Look at verse 21, clarifying question. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? Answer, certainly not. Here's the explanation we're looking for. For if the law had been given that could give life, eternal life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin and everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given notice to those who believe. Verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Here it is. So then the law was a guardian. It was a tutor. It was a teacher until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. What's the purpose of the law? It was added for two reasons. Number one, to show us our sin. Number two, to lead us to Christ. Now, I know that's a lot of theology. I know I'm explaining a lot of things. Let's just take a break. Rest a little bit. And think about what I just said. I'll give you an illustration to help explain it. What would happen if I said to my kids tonight, kids, I don't want you to go to bed too late. And I really don't want you eating anything too unhealthy. So you can stay up. You can have a great time. But don't go to bed too late. Don't eat anything too unhealthy. How do you think that would go over? (laughs) Who knows, right? Who knows what time they would go to bed? Who knows what they would decide to eat? Why is that? Because the commands are completely vague, right? And they're totally up to my kids' interpretation, which you and I both know, my kids and your kids, they're going to use to their greatest advantage, right? Why is that? Answer, that's human nature. Exactly! Exactly! It's human nature. But what if I said, no chips, no snacks, no chocolate cake out of the refrigerator? You can only eat the leftover spaghetti. That's it. 
And I want you in bed by 9 p.m. I want the lights off at 9.15. And I want you sleeping, I mean snoring, at 9.30. How do you think that would go over? Who knows? Here's what you're thinking, right? Who, who knows how that would go over? But what we do know is that it would be obvious, wouldn't it? Whether or not they obeyed or disobeyed my commands, right? Why the law? To show us our sin. And the greater the number of commands, the greater the opportunity to, dis- to disobey. And the clearer the commands, the more obvious it is when we do disobey. If my kids go to bed at 11 o'clock after eating the entire chocolate cake out of the refrigerator, it's crystal clear, isn't it? They disobeyed. God graciously gave us the law to show us our sin. Just think about how clear God's commands are in Deuteronomy 27, including the condemnation we rightly deserve when we break just one of them. He's clear every single command. He says, verse 15, cursed is the one who makes for themselves idols. Verse 16, Cursed is the one who dishonors their parents, even one time. Verse 17, cursed is the one who perverts justice. Verse 18, cursed is the one who's unkind. Listen to this. How telling is this? Verse 20, verse 21, verse 22, verse 23. Cursed is the one who's sexually immoral. Lists four different specific sexual immorality things that we are prone to do. Verse 24, cursed is the one who strikes their neighbor. Verse 25, cursed is the one who takes a bribe. Just in case you're not feeling the weight of it yet, verse 26, cursed is the one who does not abide by all the words in this law. How? By keeping them perfectly. Does that make you feel helpless? Like there's no way for you to possibly get it right. That's the point. That's why God gave us the law. Number one, to show us our sin. But number two, to show us our desperate need for a Savior. You have to feel the weight of that. You have to feel the weight of verses 1 to 12 before you can ever appreciate the weight of verse 13. You need to understand, God has commanded you to live for his glory in very specific ways, and you've disobeyed a holy God, and therefore you rightly deserve God's wrath, God's judgment, the curse of the law. Feel that. Feel the weight of that. Now look at verse 13. Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 
So A, all true believers are redeemed from the curse of the law. But just think about verse 13 with me. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He took the curse upon himself. Think about this reality because Jesus is God. Jesus willingly humbled himself by taking on humanity. So the creator and the sustainer of the world took on flesh and dwelt us among us. And one of the clearest ways we know that Jesus truly is the Messiah is because of his righteous life. What do I mean by that? I mean Jesus kept the law perfectly, summarized in the Ten Commandments. By the way, I can't wait for our upcoming fall sermon series because we're going to finish 12 Reasons Jesus Came to Die in August, then we're going to walk through Jonah in September, and then we're going to kick off Exodus in October with plans to slow all the way down and go through the Ten Commandments one at a time. Why would we do that? Because I want you to see how Jesus fulfilled them perfectly. Jesus was perfectly righteous. He kept the law perfectly Perfect moral perfection, loving God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength, perfectly loving his neighbor as himself, including his willingness to die for their sins. What's my point? My point is Jesus actually deserved God's blessing. That's what he deserved. He deserved for all his enemies to be defeated. He deserved to be showered with glory and honor, pomp and circumstance. He deserved to be welcomed into God's presence with shouts of praise. He deserved to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. He deserved to experience fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. He deserved all of that. He obeyed God's law perfectly. He deserved the blessing. What did he take instead? The curse. He took God's wrath. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse, enduring God's wrath. Look at what it says. For us. Listen to me when I say, those are two of the sweetest words in all of the Bible. That he was cursed for us. He was condemned for us. He did nothing wrong yet endured God's wrath for us. Was completely innocent yet declared guilty for us. Was punished for us. Was separated from the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All for us. Or just think of the lyrics to that great hymn. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement. Can it be? Yes, it can. How? Hallelujah. What a Savior. He was cursed for us. If you're not overwhelmed by that glorious truth, 
then you probably haven't yet experienced it. Let me be clear in saying that faith alone in Christ alone is the only way to be justified before a holy God. So there's nothing you can do to earn God's favor. Your works will always fall terribly short. Which is why I'm appealing to you to put your faith in Christ. You know, Martin Luther once said, trying to be justified by the law is like counting money out of an empty purse, eating food out of an empty bowl, drinking water out of an empty cup, looking for strength and riches where there is nothing but weakness and poverty, laying a burden on someone who is already oppressed by the point of collapse, and trying to spend a hundred gold pieces when all you have is a pittance. The glorious offer on the table right now, right in front of you is for Jesus to take the curse that you rightly deserve and give you the blessing that you do not deserve. I can't possibly think of a greater offer is, is, is there a greater offer in the world than his willingness to take your curse, eternal damnation, punishment for all eternity? He takes that and he gives you blessing. I love the Bible. And I love so much how it appeals to your head. It makes you think. It makes you wrestle with this reality. God gave commands so that I might see my sin. God gave commands so that I might see my desperate need for a Savior. God made it abundantly clear. When I break his commands, I deserve wrath. I deserve judgment. And he sent his son to take that for me. To be cursed in my place and offer me blessing. I'm appealing to your heart, your head. And I'm praying that God would take that word by his spirit and press it home on your heart. And that you grab a hold of the Lord Jesus by faith. Like Luther, who became a new man and was welcomed. He said the doors flew wide open as he entered into this glorious paradise called the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. He takes the curse. He gives you his blessing. But that deal only gets better because once you've put your faith in Christ, the blessings are only getting started. Paul says in verse 14 that in Christ, the blessing of Abraham might also come to the Gentiles. We're the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. What exactly are the blessings of Abraham? Well, first you need to understand 
Galatians 3.16, that the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, so ultimately spoken to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 29 says that if you're in Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and your heirs according to Abraham's promise. So we get those promises, we get those blessings by being in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what are those promises? Genesis 12, 1-3, that in Christ we have a great name. Is there a greater name than being a Christian? I'm in Christ. I'm a child of God. That's who I am. That in Christ we're part of a great nation. People from every tribe, language, and people group. A number that no one, no one can count. Right? Like the stars of the heavens. And we also inherit a great blessing, which verse 14 makes abundantly clear is the gift of the Spirit. So we're not only saved by the Spirit, but we're also being sanctified by the Spirit. We're not only saved by faith, but we actually walk in faith. That's what the Spirit does in our life. So what does that exactly mean for us as believers in Christ? Well, the first thing it has to mean is, number one, we never get over the gospel. I recognize some of you are going to want to skip right over this application, but Paul's adamant that we need to rehearse the gospel each and every day. So we may think we get it, but as soon as we think we get it, it's obvious that we don't get it at all. Remember what he just said, verse 13. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Absolutely not, because righteousness comes not by working for God, but by believing in God. Let me ask you again. You might say, he keeps asking the same question. Maybe that's because I'm not sure you get it. I'm not sure I get it. What's pulling the train in your life? What's the motivation? What's driving all that you do? Because if it's not your faith in Christ, Paul's saying you may have already lost the gospel altogether. See, the truth is, I think we forget how radically sinful we really are all the time. We certainly don't like evaluating our own hearts or our actions, but the gospel reminds us that God's standard is 100% perfection. Not just your best effort to serve him now and again with all sorts of acceptable sins, pet idols, and moral imperfections. So being daily reminded of the sin that still lingers in us forces us to be reminded daily of the glory of the gospel. So we're not touchy about our sin, but want to put it to death. And as we do, we cling to the cross of Christ, knowing that the worst things have already been said about us at the cross. And when we do that, it liberates you to let your faith lead you into all sorts of new adventures where you can trust God, love God, serve God, and sacrifice for God. Because by faith in Christ, we now live in the joy and the freedom of forgiveness rather than performance. We're not trying to earn God's favor. We already have that through faith in Christ. So number two, we're free to live for God's glory. 
I mean, that's what Paul's going to say later in Galatians, Galatians 5. We've been called the freedom brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but instead by the Spirit, we're free. We're free to love. We're free to serve. We're free to sacrifice. We're free to lay down our lives on a daily basis for the good of other people. We're free to do that. In the gospel, we're free. And as I close this morning, I want you to think about Martin Luther and the Reformation. And the fact that he stood before all the leading authorities in the land, both religious and secular. He stood before all of them, right? What did he say? He spent a night to think about what he was going to say. That's helpful even for us to know, right? He, he had to wrestle with these things. But then he said this, unless I am shown by scripture or by plain reason, I cannot recant and I will not recant for it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me, God. Don't you want to have freedom like that? I don't know if you've noticed, but the culture's not going in the direction of Christianity. Have you noticed that? If that's new to you, maybe you should read the newspaper or watch the news. The culture is not going the way of Christianity. There's times coming, brothers and sisters, in which we will stand before all the authorities. In this community, in your school, in your workplace, that time is coming. Don't you want to have the freedom to say, here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. Grounded on your own thinking? No. Grounded in the word of God and plain reason. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. I want that freedom. I want the freedom to put sin to death. I want the freedom to walk in righteousness. I want the freedom, real freedom, to live on a daily basis, moment by moment, for the glory of God, without guilt or shame or regret or remorse. How do we do that, beloved? We never get over the gospel. We keep it front and center, and I'm suggesting leading the way in everything that we do. Twelve reasons Jesus came to die. Number eight, to empower us to live by faith in God by the work of the Spirit in our lives for His eternal glory.
Allow me to pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to get this. I am so grateful for your word. I'm so grateful that it instructs our minds. I'm so grateful that it causes us to wrestle with the truth of the word and to see that salvation is by faith alone. To wrestle with the the reality that should I work to earn God's favor? No. No, God gave us the law so that I might see my sin. God gave us the law so that I might see my desperate daily need for a Savior to take my curse. Father, give us grace to know those things. But Father, then we pray by the work of your Spirit you would press them down to the nooks and crannies of our hearts that we would believe them. That our life would be very simple. My faith is in Christ and I'm living for His glory. Father, we're asking you to do that good work for our good. For your eternal glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.